About halfway down the eastern coast of Britain, a small promontory extends about eight miles from the Yorkshire coast. It's called Flamborough Head. Not too much to see there, to be honest with you, unless, of course, you were among the thousands of people gathered on the shore in the evening twilight on the night of September 23rd, 1779. Now, on that particular night, the British subjects living on Flamborough Head saw something that few people have ever seen and which none of them would ever forget. Just after 7 p.m., a series of brilliant orange flashes lit the surface of the ocean. 14 seconds later came the deep-throated booms. And for the next four hours, a strange man-made blue cloud hovered over the ocean, drifting slowly to the north, constantly lit from within with brilliant flashes of orange that would sometimes backlight the sails and rigging of two warships locked in a death struggle, blasting each other to splinters at point-blank range. Now, certainly there could be no doubt about one of the combatants, the dread Pirate Jones. Handbills distributed up and down the length of Great Britain showed just who they were dealing with. A giant of a man with broad shoulders and muscular thighs. He straddles a loose cannon like a colossus, a pistol raised in one hand and a wickedly curving cutlass in the other. Paul Jones the pirate, looking out over his dark, curly, black beard with the injured and angry expression of a man who has just been deeply wronged and is intent on making someone pay for it. Now, it was, in fact, Paul Jones lost in the eerie blue cloud of gunpowder that flashed and boomed for four hours off the coast of Flamborough Head that evening. The blood-soaked deck he stood upon was not really a warship at all. She'd originally been christened the Duke de Duras by her owner, who had loaned her to the fledgling American Continental Navy at the urging of Benjamin Franklin. And as a gesture of gratitude, Jones had renamed the Duke de Duras after the French translation of Franklin's book, Poor Richard's Almanac. She was the USS Bonhomme Richard. Entangled in her rigging, three miles northeast of Flamborough Head was an actual purpose-built warship, HMS Serapis, whose legendary Royal Navy gunners continued to send devastating broadsides into the American ship. John Gunnison, the head carpenter aboard the Bonhomme Richard, had just come from below to tell Jones that his ship was doomed and that the fight was over. But Jones was nowhere to be seen, and Gunnison, not unreasonably, assumed that he was among the dead and dismembered crew members littering her decks. Joined by gunner's mate Henry Gardner, he ran towards the stern in order to lower the flag and surrender. This was known as striking the colors, and once done, honor dictated that it could not be undone. But the American ensign had been shot away. Quarter, quarter, they shouted across the blood-slick deck towards the British ship. And just inside of that, on the American deck, right on the rail, was a man aiming a small cannon, and he looked up in disbelief. Who are those rascals? He shouted, pointing to the two men who had tried to surrender his bonhomme Richard. Shoot them! Kill them! Now, no one heard him above the roar of the muskets and the screams of the dying. So the American officer drew his pistol took aim, and pulled the trigger. 
forgetting that he'd discharged the pistol earlier in the fight. As Gunnison scampered below deck, the man threw the pistol as hard as he could. It struck Gardner in the back of the head, knocked him unconscious, and he fell down the ladder into the hatch and disappeared. Meanwhile, aboard HMS Serapis, Royal Navy Captain Richard Pearson shouted across to the American captain, have you struck? Do you call for quarter? I've not yet begun to fight, he bellowed, and then personally aimed and fired a deck-mounted nine-pound cannon at the bright yellow mast of HMS Serapis. Now, had the thousands of English men and women lining the shore been on deck to hear that shout of defiance, they would have been amazed and they would have been disappointed. John Paul Jones was five feet, five inches tall. Throughout his life, many people remarked on being shocked at his small stature. He was a strikingly handsome man, clean-shaven, well-dressed, and with finely chiseled features. A remarkable contemporary engraving from Morel Lejeune managed to capture his mercurial nature. Lejeune has Jones looking off to the side, as if somebody had entered the room unexpectedly, or as if a young and beautiful French countess had just walked past his window, or perhaps as if he just spotted enemy sails on the horizon and is in that frozen instant planning his attack. He was born simply as John Paul on the Arbiglund estate in the southwestern coast of Scotland. He entered this world in a small white cottage on the grounds of Arbigland, which still stands today. His father, John Paul Sr., was responsible for the upkeep of the vast gardens at Arbigland. He also designed much of it for the owner, one Mr. William Crake. Now, as a boy, John would stand above the seaside cliffs, shouting commands down to his friends in their rowboats, trying to get them to carry out the complex fleet maneuvers he had so easily and meticulously planned. John Paul had wanted to join the Royal Navy, now, getting into the Royal Navy would be easy, but getting into the Royal Navy as an officer would be nearly impossible. One of the prerequisites of being a young midshipman, arguably the only prerequisite, was that the candidate had to be a gentleman, and that was something that this gardener's son was not and could never be. So at age 13, he traveled a short distance south, crossed the Firth of Solway, which divides Scotland and England on the western coast of Britain, and soon reached the port city of Whitehaven, where he signed on as an ordinary seaman aboard a small 200-ton merchant vessel called the Friendship. Captain Robert Benson, master of the Friendship, sensed the intensity and hunger for knowledge in this particular boy. He taught him how to use an octant and the mathematics needed to calculate latitude. By the age of 17, he had made eight crossings of the Atlantic. In 1767, just 20 miles away from Whitehaven at the neighboring Scottish port of Kirkcudbright, a small merchantman named the John tied up to the quay. Half of the crew were dead of yellow fever, including the captain and the first officer. She'd been brought home by the only man aboard able to navigate, a 21-year-old passenger who had been born just down the coast at Arbigland. The owners of the John were so impressed that they gave the young man command of the ship. He was not John Paul Jones, not yet, but he was the master of a ship, and that's all that mattered. On his second voyage, a cocky, loudmouthed carpenter's mate named Mungo Maxwell thought little of this young new captain and wasn't shy about saying so. Maxwell had come from a powerful family and was not accustomed to taking orders from gardeners. Finally, after yet another of his insubordinate outbursts, John Paul had had enough. He gave him 12 lashes. 
When the John reached the Caribbean island of Tobago in the summer of 1770, Mungo Maxwell attempted to sue John Paul for excessive punishment. Now, fortunately, an admiralty court was in session at the time and concluded that Captain Paul had acted well within his authority. Fully acquitted, he loaded the John with her return cargo of mahogany, sugar, and rum and set sail back for Scotland, a much happier ship now that Mungo Maxwell had already departed for Scotland. The instant that the John tied up at Kirkcudbright, a constable came aboard and placed John Paul under arrest. The charge was murder. Mungo Maxwell, seemingly out of pure spite, had died on the journey back to Scotland, but not before telling the entire crew that his health had been broken by the flogging administered by the gardener's son, and Maxwell's powerful father had ordered the arrest of John Paul, who was released on bail so that he could sail back to the Caribbean and retrieve the admiralty records that eventually led to charges being completely dropped. Three years later, John Paul was back in Tobago. A local man named Blackton, who was much like Mungo Maxwell, did not react well to the news that Captain Paul had spent their pay on badly needed repairs and that they would be repaid on the return to Scotland. Blackton advanced on the captain, screaming vulgarities, waving a cudgel, and calling for bloody mutiny. John Paul drew his sword. Blackton charged at him, swinging the cudgel. The captain ran him through, and Blackton promptly died. This time, however, an admiralty court was not in session. John Paul would not be judged by an experienced board of professional ship captains, but by a local jury likely composed of Blackton's friends and family. He decided to run for it. Leaving everything he'd made for himself behind, John Paul made his way to Fredericksburg, Virginia, and soon found himself in a small tavern, sleeping on a straw mat in a small windowless room filled with about a dozen other men. John Paul, age 26, formerly a prestigious and prospering ship's master, but now just another felon wanted for murder, added the most ordinary name he could think of to his own. And then he crawled into the woodwork. And there, John Paul Jones would stay until the revolution came to call for him two years later. Now, to understand how much Jones did with how little he had, we need to take a look at the fate of the 13 new American-built frigates that John Adams had single-handedly rammed through Congress, the kind of powerful warship that Jones would never have a chance to command. USS Washington, Congress, Effingham, and Montgomery were either scuttled or burned to prevent their capture by advancing British land forces in October and November of 1777. None of them ever put out to sea. USS Virginia made five unsuccessful attempts to sneak past the British blockade of Chesapeake Bay from April to December of 1777. Now, on the night of March 31st, 1778, nearly a year after being commissioned, she managed to slip past them in the dark and then promptly smashed hard aground. USS Virginia promptly became HMS Virginia and assisted the British capture of Charleston in 1779. On September 27, 1777, USS Delaware was performing a delaying action as Washington moved his army to avoid the British. Her captain, unaware of the mysterious nautical phenomenon known as tides, left her stranded in mid-river and added another strong frigate to the Royal Navy. USS Warren was assigned to the most powerful American fleet assembled during the Revolutionary War. 44 ships set sail for Penobscot Bay in a daring raid to liberate the coast of Maine from the Royal Navy. But 
The American fleet admiral spent so much time arguing with the commander of the colonial marines that the Royal Navy had time to respond to the threat. The entire American fleet, 19 warships and 25 support vessels, were either destroyed by British gunfire or, like USS Warren, burned by her own crew in order to avoid capture. The pride of the Continental Navy, the magnificent USS Hancock, was given to Captain John Manley. Now, there's a woodcut of Captain Manley which does not inspire confidence. He appears to be sawing off his own right arm with his cutlass. Hancock ran into a Royal Navy flotilla and after a 39-hour chase, HMS Rainbow finally made it into range and Manley simply struck his colors. USS Hancock then became HMS Iris, which proved so effective a fighting ship that her new Royal Navy crew dubbed her the finest and fastest frigate in the world. No doubt she was. USS Randolph did better. On March 7, 1778, she was escorting a convoy of American merchantmen when she encountered the massive HMS Yarmouth, a Royal Navy ship of the line. USS Randolph, one of the most powerful American ships afloat, could throw 372 pounds of iron balls. Yarmouth, just one of several hundred Royal Navy ships, could throw 1,408 pounds, and the tiny sloop Providence, given to the only American commander who really knew how to fight, could throw a grand total of 48 pounds. Captain of the Randolph, Nicholas Biddle, brought the American frigate right alongside the massive Yarmouth and was giving as good as she got before a British cannonball found her main powder magazine and blew the Randolph to splinters. Of the 309 men aboard the Randolph, 305 were killed instantly, including her captain. But thanks to Biddle's relentless courage, Randolph was so close to her opponent when she exploded that she very nearly took Yarmouth with her. The American merchant convoy escaped unharmed, and for once, an American man of war did her young country proud. Another of the big American frigates, USS Raleigh, was given to John Barry, who along with John Paul Jones and John Adams, shares the title of Father of the United States Navy. Now, Barry would go on to serve with distinction in the Continental and United States navies, but on the morning of September 28, 1778, while heavily engaging HMS Unicorn and HMS Experiment, she ran aground just outside of ill-fated Penobscot Bay. The British ships battered the American frigate into surrender, and another of America's biggest, most powerful warships fell into enemy hands to become HMS Rally. All of that treasure and all of that blood had resulted in the Americans constructing several strong frigates for use in the Royal Navy, as the one man who would prove capable of using them effectively was placed dead last on the seniority list and had to set sail in a tiny sloop named USS Providence, whose entire armament was equal to one or at most two of the 60-odd individual cannons in each of the hundreds of Royal Navy warships patrolling the American coast. Jones took USS Providence out of Delaware Bay and into the open sea on August 26th. Providence would take 16 British prizes on her first cruise, and despite the mounting gales of late autumn, the moment that she'd been refitted and reprovisioned, Jones took her right back out to sea. Now, it didn't take long for them to spot a new sail appearing on the horizon, bearing down fast. It was HMS Milford, another fine frigate which far outgunned the tiny Providence. Jones shortened sail to allow Milford to slowly close, and just as she was coming into range of her forward-firing guns, Jones would let fly the canvas and Providence would simply surge ahead, leaving Milford firing broadsides in impotent fury. As darkness fell, Milford 
fired a final round of cannon fire that just splashed harmlessly into the ocean. Jones contemptuously ordered a Marine to fire a single musket shot in Milford's direction as a sign of his utter contempt. Then in November of 1776, Jones made what was surely the single greatest catch of the war. It was the Mellish, filled with 10,000 warm woolen uniforms intended for British General John Burgoyne, who was about to launch an invasion from Canada designed to cut New England off from the other colonies and bring an end to the war. Instead, Burgoyne would surrender his entire army of 6,200 men in October of 1777 at Saratoga, citing extreme privation. Now, certainly, the lack of woolen uniforms contributed substantially to that privation. It was the turning point of the war. Those uniforms would go to the freezing and starving men who had stood with George Washington at Valley Forge. Many of the common soldiers you see depicted in Washington crossing the Delaware are wearing British uniforms intercepted at sea by John Paul Jones just a few months before. Jones would never have a chance to command one of the 13 American frigates that had been promised to him, but he would get the next best thing. She was brand new, sloop rigged like the Providence, but larger, sleeker, and faster. She would go on to capture an incredible 31 enemy vessels, and she was called USS Ranger. Jones's orders also named the two men he would be depending on the most. His executive officer would be Lieutenant Thomas Simpson, who, by happy coincidence, happened to be the brother-in-law of the Ranger's shipbuilder, John Langdon. Ranger's second officer would be Simpson's friend, Elijah Hall, who, like Simpson, had never sailed under naval discipline before. Now, when Jones arrived at his new command, he could see that Ranger's triple masks were far too big for a ship that size. In heavy winds, she would heel over. In seaman terms, she was crank. And that was bad, because it meant that the guns on the windward side would be aiming at the clouds, while those on the lee side would be pointing straight down into the ocean. Jones didn't want a ship that petulant and that mean-spirited, or in other words, that cranky, when things got hot. Langdon, Jones believed, was saving the best materials for the lucrative privateers he was building. When he demanded that Ranger be re-rigged, Langdon reminded him in no uncertain terms that he was the authorized naval agent appointed by the United States Congress and didn't need a Scottish renegade telling him how to build a fighting ship. Jones would later write to a friend about the encounter. He thinks himself my master, and he who was bred in a shop and who hath been on a voyage or two at sea under a nurse, had the assurance to tell me that he knew as well as myself how to fit out, govern, and fight a ship of war. It had been Langdon who'd put pressure on his local congressman to push through the appointments of Simpson and Hall. That congressman was a vain, pretentious, not very bright, loudmouthed idiot named William Whipple. I'll add here, parenthetically, that my dorm at the University of Florida during my freshman year was named Simpson Hall. On the morning of November 1st, USS Ranger was on her way to France. To the disgust of Lieutenant Simpson and Hall, Jones talked about mad stratagems to take Ranger to war with the entire Royal Navy. Both of these former privateers knew that a very tidy sum could be made at far less risk. Now, while his officers continued to mutter about mutiny aboard Ranger, Jones was in Paris laying out his vision to Benjamin Franklin and Louis XVI's naval minister. John Paul Jones didn't want to fight the Royal Navy off the coast of the Carolinas or New England. He wanted to take a small squadron to St. Helen off the coast of Africa. 
They would capture, burn, and sink British shipping to and from India, the jewel of the empire, losing priceless cargoes to Americans running loose astride their most valuable shipping lanes would force the recall of far more British warships than they would ever have a chance to sink. John Paul Jones, virtually alone during the American Revolution, understood the need to take the fight to the British and make King George and his loyal subjects feel the sting of the war that had been raging painlessly across the vast Atlantic. Hundreds of American prisoners, essentially treated as pirates, continued to suffer and die in miserable conditions in British dungeons. And John Paul, who'd grown up with British aristocracy, knew precisely what it would take to free them. On April 10th, 1778, USS Ranger departed the French port of Brest and made for Whitehaven, the English coastal port where young John Paul had signed aboard the Friendship 21 years before. Now, Jones knew from personal experience that waiting for him in Whitehaven would be 200 British merchantmen. At low tide, they would settle gently into the soft mud of the shallow bay where for about an hour or two, a man could walk from one to the other with ease. Jones meant to burn them all. He called for volunteers. He needed 40 men. He got 15. Lieutenant Simpson and Hall flat out refused to go and would remain aboard the Ranger. Jones had wasted so much time arguing with his first and second officers that by the time they reached the first of the two forts guarding the harbor, dawn was already beginning to break in the east. Sending most of the raiding party on to burn the enemy vessels lying peacefully out in the mud, Jones and a handful of men immediately spiked all 36 guns of the fort, rendering them useless. Spiking a cannon was a simple but effective act. A corrugated metal spike would be hammered into the touch hole and then broken off at the base. It would take days or weeks to remove. Now, no one was awake in Whitehaven, and why would they be? Great Britain had slept in perfect safety behind the wooden wall of the Royal Navy for almost two centuries. Jones and his small party emerged from the fort expecting to see the burning merchant fleet. What they found instead was the main party of their men staggering around on the quay. They'd made their way into the town, broken into a tavern, and were now roaring drunk. If anything, they looked disappointed to see that their captain was still alive. They had hoped to row back to Ranger without him. Enraged and disgusted, Jones grabbed a bag of tar-covered pine cones and made for a large collier resting serenely in the mud. He climbed aboard, lit several of them, and tossed them into the hold. He was about to head for the next ship, but then the town was suddenly alive with ringing bells and clanging pots. One of his men, one of his own men, an Irishman intent on deserting, had alerted the townspeople of what was transpiring in their own harbor. Hundreds of them ran out to save the burning ship. Jones took a few steps towards them and raised his pistol. I stood on the pier for a considerable space of time, yet no one advanced, he would later write. There he stood, a small man with a pistol in one hand and a cutlass in the other, facing hundreds of furious townspeople as his men made their way to the boats behind them, the burning collier ablaze in the early morning sunlight. I found that exact spot on the pier in Whitehaven on Google Earth. There's a pizza hut just a few doors down. Now, bitterly disappointed, he turned Ranger Northwest for the other port that he'd come to know so well, Kirk Cudbright, a mere 20 miles across the Firth of Solway in Scotland. A long wooded peninsula known as St. Mary's Isle extends south of the port, and by noon, Jones and a dozen men were making their way through the trees and up to the manor house belonging to the fourth Earl of Selkirk. Now, this must have been a grand moment for him. 
The Earl had testified on behalf of the well-connected Mungo Maxwell, whose powerful family had wanted Jones convicted of murder for the flogging of their son. John Paul Jones would stand before this peer of the realm as captain in the Continental Navy of the United States of America. And he would escort him politely, but at gunpoint, back to USS Ranger, where he would be exchanged for all of the American prisoners slowly wasting away in British dungeons. But the Earl had left for England a few days earlier. Facing a second devastating disappointment just a few hours after his failure at Whitehaven, Jones walked grimly back to the Ranger and prepared to make way. He had no way of knowing that the news from Whitehaven had already reached nearby Kirkcudbright. It was utter bedlam. Merchants were loading everything they had into hastily assembled carts and driving them out into the countryside to keep them out of the hands of the American invasion armada. In the days to come, it would look as though someone had taken a match to a parchment scroll of the British Isles, held it under the town of Whitehaven, and then watched as the fire of panic radiated out to cover all of Britain and Ireland. Now, Jones was determined not to just skulk out of British home waters without something to show for it. He turned Ranger East towards Ireland. Less than 80 miles away on the mouth of the inlet that led to Belfast lay a small port known as Carrickfergus. Local fishermen claimed that sitting in the harbor at Carrickfergus lay HMS Drake, a sloop of war like the Ranger. The following morning, Ranger skirted the edge of the harbor flying a British flag. Drake sent an officer over in a boat to investigate. Jones welcomed the Drake's officer aboard and informed him that he was now a prisoner of the United States, then sailed defiantly just out of gun range. Drake unfurled the white and red ensign of the Royal Navy. Ranger let fly the brand new Stars and Stripes. The two ships soon found themselves facing each other, muzzle to muzzle, 50 yards apart. Now, like all naval officers at that time, a gentleman was expected to stand stiffly in his dress uniform and receive the enemy's fire without flinching. Jones heard the man standing in front of him scream as a British four-pounder tore off one of his fingers. Jones had provisioned as many of his men as he could high up in the rigging, and they were pouring musket fire down onto the British deck. His Marines were taking their toll on the British officer, and Jones, as always, took every advantage to be gained from the wind. He remained downwind of the Drake, meaning that as both ships heeled over, Drake's guns would be firing into the water, but Ranger would be banging away at His Majesty's sails. After an hour of this, Drake's sails had been shot away. Her captain had taken a musket ball in the head, and the executive officer lay mortally wounded as well. HMS Drake struck her colors in the early evening of April 24th, 1778, when Jones sent a boat over carrying the prize crew that would sail Drake back to Brest, the Americans found her deck slick not only with blood, but with rum. It had been brought out before the fight by Drake's captain to celebrate their upcoming quick victory over the bumbling Americans. An American warship had beaten a Royal Navy vessel in an even fight, and it had done it deep inside British home waters, which the British people had long believed were inviolable. Now, as the news spread, the outrage grew. How was it that the Royal Navy, with their overwhelming advantage in ships, had allowed a single American sloop to sack a coastal town, put armed men on a post at the front door of an Earl of the Realm, and then capture one of His Majesty's ships in the mouth of its own harbor and sail it in triumph back to the home of their ancient enemy, France? Jones, 
had twisted the lion's tail to such an egregious degree that the only way that the British could assuage their pride was to put it into the terms used in an article published in the Morning Chronicle and London Advertiser two days after Ranger had returned to France. Now, noting that Ranger had mounted a few more guns than the Drake, the article concluded that, quote, in our engagements with the French and Spaniards, such a superiority would have been merely laughed at. But the case is widely different when we engage with our own countrymen, men who have the same spirit and bravery with ourselves. John Paul Jones had single-handedly turned the British conception of the American Navy from being the cowardly and blundering supplier of fine new frigates for His Majesty's Royal Navy into nothing less than equals in skill, courage, and fighting spirit. He'd shown the British that there was now a real danger that they may lose this war, and he'd shown the Americans that there was a very real chance that they could win it. Back in Paris, Ben Franklin was scrounging around trying to find a new command for Jones. He wrote him and asked him what kind of ship he might be looking for. Jones wrote back and said, I wish to have no connection with any ship that does not sail fast, for I intend to go in harm's way. Now, in the darkness of September 23rd, 1779, Bonhomme Richard, the ship that Jones had sailed into harm's way, was sinking under his feet as the guns of HMS Serapis blasted her wooden guts out into the waters off the Flamborough ahead. She'd not been fast. In fact, Bonhomme Richard had been by far the slowest of the small four-ship flotilla that Jones had led out of port and into the North Atlantic on August 14th. Emboldened by Jones's success with the Ranger, the French had managed to convince the Spanish that now was the time to strike hard at their common enemy that had humiliated both powers at sea for centuries. Jones would simply be the bait to lure the Royal Navy out of the English Channel. Then the combined French and Spanish fleets would cut their way through what remained of the Royal Navy and land a real invasion force on the southern coast of Britain, thereby accomplishing in unison what they had so singularly failed to achieve individually. But then, Another of those twists of fate that changed the course of history arrived in the form of a combined typhus and smallpox epidemic that swept through the notoriously unsanitary French and Spanish fleets, ending the planned invasion before it began. Jones's small four-ship flotilla, originally bait, was now the only game afloat. Now, the real jewel of that flotilla was USS Alliance, Far faster, more maneuverable, and more heavily gunned than Jones's converted merchantmen, political connections had led to her being awarded to the person least fit to command her, one Pierre Landes, who had not impressed John Adams, who remarked, there is in this man an inactivity and indecision that will ruin him. He is bewildered, an absent, bewildered man, an embarrassed mind. Putting Landes in command of alliance, a fast frigate while Jones had to settle with the slow, ungainly former merchantman was yet another of the monumental errors brought on by rank political corruption in a Continental Congress that seemed to be doing everything in its power to lose the war. As they reached the coast of Ireland, Landais insisted on using the magnificent alliance to run around chasing whatever prizes he might encounter. And when Jones ordered Landais to stay with the squadron, Landais became so incensed that he drew his sword and challenged Jones on the spot. Jones managed to calm him down only by agreeing to a duel once they'd returned to port. Landais then stormed back to Alliance and promptly disappeared for the next two critical weeks. Jones continued north 
circumnavigating the coast of Scotland, and he was returning south off the eastern coast of Britain when on the afternoon of September 23rd, he spotted the jackpot that he'd been searching for since leaving France almost six weeks earlier. A seemingly endless parade of sails on the horizon. Jones had found the British Baltic merchant fleet, 44 fat prizes escorted by the new and immensely powerful HMS Serapis. The British warship turned toward the Americans, and as the sun set behind them, the people of Flamborough Head came to the shore in their thousands to watch as their Royal Navy finally put an end to the pirate Paul Jones. He was outgunned and outmaneuvered, but at least Jones would finally have young officers of courage, patriotism, and determination serving underneath him. His executive officer, First Lieutenant Richard Dale, who'd sailed with Jones as a regular seaman on board the Providence, was 22 at the time, a calm and capable young officer who admired Jones greatly. Midshipman Nathaniel Fanning, 24, would be sent aloft to command the sharpshooters trying to clear the deck of the Serapis. Another midshipman, Jonas Corum, would be commanding the men in the forward section. Now, Jones knew that Serapis was faster, more maneuverable, and better armed. Fanning would later state that Serapis was outsailing Bonhomme Richard by two feet to one. Jones did have one advantage, however, his Marines. He ordered Fanning high into the rigging with his best sharpshooters and told midshipman Corum in the bow to prepare his grappling hooks. Now, Serapis, with far superior guns, tried to stand off and continue to pound the American ship into kindling, but Jones managed to turn into her and plant his bowsprit, that's the long wooden spar at the bow, deep into the British ship's rigging. Well done, my brave lads, we've got her now, shouted Jones as the two ships slowly started to pivot together. Throw on the grappling irons and stand by for boarding. Fifty hooks and lines were thrown over into the rigging of the Serapis. The British desperately tried to cut the lines with hatchets, but Fanning's men were picking them off mercilessly from above. But below, the legendary gunners of the Royal Navy continued to pound away at the aging merchantman like a staggering boxer. Bonhomme Richard clung to Serapis, facing in opposite directions and lashed so tightly together that the protruding cannons were literally muzzle to muzzle. Jones then helped manhandle a nine-pound cannon mounted on the main deck over to the starboard side and then personally aimed the gun at the bright yellow mainmast of the Serapis and began pounding away. But just then, right around 9.15 p.m., a devastating broadside of grape shot, that's essentially shotgun fired from a cannon, tore down the decks of both ships, blowing some men to pieces and grievously wounding others. But it hadn't come from Serapis, whose guns were locked with those of Bonhomme Richard. It had come from somewhere else out in the gloom. It had come from Alliance. The Americans on board the Richard were waving and screaming, for God's sakes, wrong ship, stop firing. She was just about 100 yards away as she crossed Jones's bow, and he watched in rage and horror as Landais fired a second broadside of grape directly into the British and American sailors. Alliance has wounded me, muttered young Jonas Corum, which was true only for a moment or two, the time it took for the 17-year-old midshipman to die on the deck of Bonhomme Richard. Careful to remain clear of the murderous broadside of HMS Serapis, USS Alliance then drifted back out into the safety of the thick blue cloud of gunpowder. Jones, his face the color of burned copper, returned to his personal mission of bringing down the British warship's mainmast with his jury-rigged nine-pounder. 
It was about this time that Chief Carpenter Gunnison and Gunner's mate Gardner emerged from the carnage below decks and began to run aft to strike the colors and shout for quarter. It was Fanning, watching from high above, who recalled witnessing his captain throw both of his discharged pistols at them as they ran for cover below decks, fracturing Gardner's skull. We were hailed again by the Serapis, wrote Lieutenant Dale in his after-action report. Has your ship struck? To which Captain Jones answered, I have not yet begun to fight. Jones had barely caught his breath when a Royal Marine boarding party made its way to the bow of the Richard. Jones ran forward, grabbed a pike from a dying American sailor, and with a handful of Marines managed to push the British professionals back onto the deck of HMS Serapis. Just after 10 p.m., another thunderous explosion shredded men, wood, and canvas all around him. Through the fresh blue-white cloud of gunpowder, Jones could see the powerful lines of USS Alliance gliding past a second time, her guns smoking from a third round of grape shot fired point-blank into the USS Bonhomme Richard. As his hated Commodore's flagship continued to settle ever deeper into the water, Landace once again sailed Alliance out of harm's way and sat silently awaiting the conclusion. For almost four hours, Midshipman Nathaniel Fanning, 15 Marines, and four sailors had been high aloft on a small platform facing not only the return musket fire of the Royal Marines, but also the fires that continued to appear in their small, precariously swaying wood and canvas universe. In addition to their muskets, they also carried a small supply of bombs. We call them hand grenades today. A sailor named William Hamilton, an immigrant Scotsman like his captain, clung to one of the huge spars high atop the Bonhomme Richard and made his way directly over the deck of the Serapis, began lobbing these grenades at the open hatch leading down to the British ship's gun deck. By this point, the Royal Navy gunners had been pounding away at the American ship for four hours. They had continued firing until there was nothing left to shoot at other than mangled corpses in the open ocean on the far side of the American vessel. They were finally able to take a brief rest, but the young boys responsible for bringing up gunpowder from the well-protected magazines, the so-called powder monkeys, had continued to stack their charges on the gun deck as they'd been trained to do. Somewhere around 10.15 p.m. on the evening of September 23rd, 1779, a grenade thrown by William Hamilton landed in the middle of these stacked charges, and a few seconds later, the entire gun deck of HMS Serapis exploded in fire, splinters, and burnt human flesh. Her main mast, which Jones had been hammering on with his single nine-pounder, began to give way. Her upper decks were slick with blood and pierced with the screams of dying men. Below them, ash-white figures of British gunners staggered towards the ladders, their burned skin falling off of them before they fell. Aboard HMS Serapis, Captain Pearson had seen enough. He called to the American captain, who was still sighting his cannon at his teetering mainmast, Sir, I have struck. I asked for quarter. In response, Jones pointed to the Royal Navy ensign that prior to the first shots, his adversary had nailed to the flagstaff with his own hands, a sign he would rather die than surrender. If you have struck, haul down your ensign. And then at that, Richard Pearson, age 48, captain in His Majesty's Royal Navy, and commander of one of the king's newest and most powerful warships, HMS Serapis, walked to the stern of his ship and tore down the white and red flag that had been the terror of the seven seas for the past two centuries. Not long afterwards, Pearson held out his sword 
to the 32-year-old gardener's son who had beaten him. Sir, you fought like a hero, said Jones. Nathaniel Fanning would later write that Pearson, struggling to maintain control, at first had no answer for his young American adversary, but then quietly, he simply asked as to the nationality of Jones's crew. Now, it had been a polyglot lot to say the least, but Jones didn't hesitate. Mostly Americans, he replied. Pearson looked around at the wreckage and the horrific carnage. 270 men had crewed the Serapis. Some 320 had sailed aboard Bonhomme Richard. Half of them were dead, dying, or wounded. Then it was diamond cut diamond, he said. Now, despite the fact that every available ship in the Royal Navy was headed his way, Jones nevertheless spent the entire next day trying to save Bonhomme Richard. But late the next day, she went down by the bow, leaving for one brief moment the star-spangled banner fluttering above the waves before disappearing into the icy North Sea. Jones eluded his pursuers and made it safely to neutral Amsterdam. Waiting just outside of Dutch waters was an entire squadron of Royal Navy warships determined to sink, capture, or hang the man that had so often humbled their pride. As a reward for his action against the Serapis, Jones had been given command of USS Alliance. Upon his return to America, Marines would forcibly remove Captain Pierre Landais from his command, kicking and screaming. He would eventually be cashiered for insanity. On the morning of December 27, 1779, John Paul Jones loaded on every sail he had and took USS Alliance into the English Channel in broad daylight and in plain sight of what appeared to be the entire Royal Navy. With a huge Stars and Stripes ensign taunting the British from the stern, Jones drove the Alliance for all she was worth. When one of his officers warned that the ship was carrying so much canvas that it might snap the main mast, Jones nodded and said, well, she'll either carry the sail or drag it. Midshipman Fanning, whose cool heroism high in the rigging had determined the outcome of the fight, would later write, I believe those John Englishmen who saw us thought that we were pretty saucy fellows. John Paul Jones returned to Paris in triumph. The next six weeks would be the happiest of his life. Crowds lined the boulevards in order to catch a glimpse of him. King Louis XVI and his queen, Marie Antoinette, had invited Jones to join them in their box at the opera. For a man so hungry for glory and status, he behaved with remarkable and very becoming modesty. The young ladies especially were impressed by the poetry written by this well-dressed, well-mannered, and sensitive man whom they'd all taken for a bearded ruffian with a knife in his teeth. Not long after, at Versailles, the King of France bestowed upon John Paul Jones a sword inlaid with gold and the words, a reward from Louis XVI to the valiant avenger of the rights of the sea. And then he gave him something of even greater value to the commoner from Arbiglin, membership in the Order du Mérite Militaire. It was the French equivalent of knighthood. And from that moment forward, Jones would sign himself the Chevalier Paul Jones. He even ordered a third revision to his self-invented coat of arms. And here, right here, in a just world, Jones would have been killed by a falling meteorite. And I would not have to do what I don't want to do, which is tell you as briefly as possible what happened in the final years of his life. The Treaty of Paris was signed on September 3rd, 1783, ending the American War for Independence. Jones now had the country he had done so much to help create. What he didn't have 
was a job. Congress had never granted Jones flag rank, and that continued to eat at him. So much so, in fact, that he took a commission as an admiral in the Russian Navy at the direct invitation of Catherine the Great, who was escalating Russia's ancient war against Turkey. She recruited him aggressively. This man will enter Constantinople, she remarked, and she gave him command of the Russian Black Sea's fleet flagship, the Vladimir. Now, the less said about this entire sad affair, the better. Jones moved with his customary skill and audacity, but he was not made for court intrigue. Catherine and Potemkin soon tired of him, and by May of 1790, Jones found himself back in Paris. He wasn't the man he was 10 years earlier when all of France was aflame just to catch a glimpse of him. And to be fair, Paris was not what it used to be either. The lightheartedness of the upper classes had given way to an ever-increasing sense of foreboding. The king and queen had already been removed from power by the French Revolution and were prisoners in their own palace awaiting the verdict of the mob. Governor Morris, who'd played a major role in crafting the U.S. Constitution, was now minister plenipotentiary to France. He did not do himself credit in his dealings with the great naval hero of the War of Independence. Morris's journal entries mockingly list all of the times that Jones had come calling. Paul Jones calls. He has nothing to say. Paul Jones calls and gives me his time, but I cannot lend him mine. Paul Jones comes in, but I neglect him perforce so that he goes away. One of Jones's few remaining friends in Paris commented on the neat appearance of his now faded uniform, his sudden and alarming decline in health, his loose skin and yellow eyes, and through it all, the plans and stratagems he continued to express to deaf ears. Governor Morris's diary dated July 18, 1792, included the notation, a message from Paul Jones that he is dying. I will go thither and make his will. Jones was having great difficulty breathing. Morris wrote down a few instructions, reassured Jones that he'd be back later to check on him, and then went about the rest of his business. He had dinner at home with his family, he attended an official event at the Paris Opera, spent a few hours with his mistress, and then stopped by at Jones's small apartment on his way home. He found Jones kneeling at bedside as if praying. But John Paul Jones was dead. He died of kidney failure, the symptoms of which had been obvious for weeks. He spent 32 years at sea, taking every chance he could to sail into harm's way and emerge from a life at sea in the service of his country with nothing more than a scratch. How off, then, that this forgotten American hero should die by drowning. Not in a cloud of gunpowder out on the North Sea, but rather alone in a shabby apartment in a foreign city, drowned in his own fluids. Destitute at the time of his death, Jones was facing burial in an unmarked pauper's grave. Ambassador Morris refused to spend a penny of public funds on seeing Jones decently interred. But his friend Francois-Pierre Soumenon, a man whose name should be also remembered, could not bear the thought of the remains of John Paul Jones being tossed into a pit. Certain that at some time in the future, America would realize the value of his friend, Soumenon paid 462 francs that would be thousands of dollars today out of his own pocket to have Jones wrapped in linen, foil, and cotton, and then placed in a sealed lead coffin. And he also insisted that it be filled with alcohol with the hope of preserving Jones's body for proper burial someday. 
His body was put on a cart and taken to a remote cemetery known as St. Louis's. Jones, a Scottish Protestant, would have to be buried in one of the few burial places set aside for non-Catholics. Governor Morris had a dinner party and did not attend. What more flattering homage could we pay to Paul Jones, the Protestant minister intoned, than to swear on his tomb to live free or die? It is the vow, it is the watchword of every Frenchman. The small group of mourners dispersed and the gravediggers completed their work. Three weeks later, August 10th, 1792, French revolutionaries stormed the Tuileries Palace where Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette had been imprisoned. 600 of the elite Swiss guards were killed during the assault. Their bodies were trundled off to the Protestant burial ground at St. Louis's cemetery, where they were simply dumped on the ground and left to rot. The roads that once led to the gates of the cemetery gave way to newer streets and eventually buildings would be constructed where the open fields had been by Napoleon's time. No one knew or cared much about the abandoned field where cows were now pastured and garbage was dumped. The location and even the name of St. Louis's cemetery would be forgotten. And forgotten, too, would be the final resting place of the man who had brought the American war home to the British and given Americans something to cheer about when cheer was very hard to come by. John Paul Jones had disappeared into the history that he had done so much to make. But there's an epilogue. In 1897, newly elected President William McKinley appointed Horace Porter to be his U.S. ambassador to France. A recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions at the disastrous Union defeat at Chickamauga during the Civil War, Horace Porter became more and more aggravated about the sorry fate of America's first naval hero, and he decided to do something about it. Paying every penny from his own pocket, Porter began a long and torturous effort to first determine where Jones had actually been buried. As the years went by and other leads proved to be empty, he became convinced that he must have been laid to rest in St. Louis Cemetery. Now the problem was finding out just where St. Louis Cemetery had really been. After more painstaking research, Porter was convinced he'd found the location, and he made arrangements with the French owners of the properties that had long since been built on top of the suspected site. Porter's men would sink five vertical shafts right through the floorboards of the buildings themselves. Once they hit what they thought would be the most likely depth, they'd start to branch out horizontally as in a coal mine. It was gruesome, nasty work. As they spread out from the initial shafts, the miners were literally digging through corpses. On April 7, 1905, Horace Porter received a message saying that one of the miners had struck metal with his pick. Porter made his way down the vertical shaft and into one of the galleries. The coffin was in very bad shape. It had been crushed about as flat as a soda can. But as they gently began to pry open the top, the smell of alcohol wafted through the room. Working by candlelight, they began to delicately unwrap the linen. Porter had brought with him medallions made from a contemporary bust that Jones had sat for for the great French sculptor Houdon, and he compared them to the face revealed by the candlelight in this mineshaft of the lost. Paul Jones, shouted one of the miners. On July 6, 1905, at a church ceremony packed with French and American dignitaries, Horace Porter rose and began to speak. 
This day, America claims its illustrious debt he began. He thanked the French government and the French people for all that they had done to protect, quote, the memory of a hero who once covered two continents with his renown in battling for the cherished principles of political liberty and the rights of man, for which the two republics have so strenuously contended. Twelve American sailors hoisted the magnificent wooden coffin housing the remains of John Paul Jones onto their shoulders. They walked down the church aisle to a horse-drawn artillery caisson outside, decorated with the red, white, and blue of both countries. At 5 p.m., several French regiments began the march down the Avenue de la Alma, down to the Champs-Élysées. 500 U.S. sailors and Marines marched behind them. Tens of thousands of Parisians had lined that route in silence, but as the flag-draped caisson passed in front of them, they would spontaneously break into cheers, deafening cheers, cheers louder than all of the cannons on all of the oceans of the world fired together. At 5 p.m. the following day, USS Brooklyn, leading a U.S. Navy squadron dispatched by President Theodore Roosevelt solely to return the father of the United States Navy home again, began to steam out of Cherbourg Harbor with the coffin of John Paul Jones on an elevated platform on the foredeck. As the American ships cleared the breakwater, they began to put on steam. Off to their right, just a few miles away, the tip of the Normandy Peninsula curved away east and south, hiding the beaches that American sailors and soldiers would return to 14,214 days into the future. The memory of what Jones had done during dark days would be very badly needed then. USS Brooklyn headed out into the English Channel, where her guest of honor had caused so much mischief 126 years earlier. Ahead lay the southern coast of England. Now the official national anthem of Great Britain is God Save the Queen. But there's a second anthem dear to the British and one which they have sung with much more passion. Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Britons never, never, never will be slaves. Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Well, not when John Paul Jones was there, they didn't. For two years, he sailed with impunity through the hearts of their home waters, knocking hard on that wall of oak that protected their island and doing it from the inside. Jones had shown them that Americans could not be defeated by the British because the men under the new flag were the British. It was diamond that cut diamond, Captain Pearson had said as he handed Jones his sword and surrendered HMS Serapis. One man with third-rate ships and with a few notable exceptions, drunken and mutinous crews had taken from the British people the one thing the entire magnificent fleets of France and Spain and Holland had been unable to wrest from them for the past 500 years. And that was their respect. The Royal Navy had been and would always be Britain's greatest jewel, a diamond that could cut anything except another diamond. It took John Paul Jones to show them that America could not and would not be beaten. America had not yet begun to fight. USS Brooklyn turned and headed west to the Naval Academy at Annapolis. John Paul Jones was sailing home at last. <laughs> 